Tom here. Welcome back to Owl Celebrates Learning, a podcast that features the stories of students from the owl community and potentially other podcasts from other schools throughout the city and the state of Minnesota. The first few podcasts featured single students sharing stories, but there was an option for students to work in pairs to compare and contrast different migration stories. This is one of those. Haley Going First provides more background information on the Hmong people and the story of a former soldier, while Lily's story compares that historical tale to a contemporary one taking place now in Syria. In 1973, U.S. troops left Laos, leaving behind nearly 18,000 Hmong soldiers who had fought on the side of the U.S., the wars in Laos and Vietnam, and also more than 120,000 Hmong people. In 1975, the communist Pathet Lao successfully overthrew the U.S.-aligned Royal Laotian government and started a campaign to eliminate any Hmong people who they suspected of cooperating with the CIA. Suddenly, the more than 120,000 Hmong people that lived in Laos became endangered in their own homeland. Many Hmong people became refugees and risked the dangerous Mekong River crossing into Thailand. Before all that, back in 1960, President John F. Kennedy authorized the recruitment of minority groups in Laos to help the CIA with secret operations against the communist forces in the area. Zhang Su Yang, a Hmong teenager, was one of the people recruited to fight. Um, and uh, when I was still a teenager, it first started as I was a student for three years, and then by the time I was 15, I became a CIA soldier because when the North uh, Vietnamese came and invaded our country, and I started to be a CIA, CIA soldier. In 1962, the CIA took Yang to Thailand to train as a paratrooper. Between 62 and 65, Zheng Su Yang moved back and forth between Thailand and Laos, getting further training himself and then returning to Laos to train other soldiers. In 1965, Yang was injured. I went back in, into the war and um, I was shot for the first time. I was uh, unconscious for uh, more than uh, 24 hours and later. At that time, I was carried by my soldier for uh, uh, 48 hours on their back uh, and then the helicopter came and take me to the uh, hospital in San Juan and that's where I uh, rehabilitated. Over the course of the war, Yang would be shot three more times. Yang would continue to fight until 1965, when Laos became dangerous for Hmong people. Just keep fighting and fighting until 1975, when the, uh, we just lost our country and we all came to uh, Thailand. So. Mm-hmm. Yang would stay in Thailand for four years. In 1979, he emigrated to the U.S. Yang says he came to the U.S. because in 1962, President Kennedy made promises to the Hmong people about giving them refuge in the U.S. Uh, like there was a, a signed consent that, you know, we can do that. So that's why at that time we lost our country. So that's why we came. And, and 
my my first thought was that it doesn't matter which country I go to, you know, when I go to that country, then those people will become my people and they will become my family and they will be my leader into that country. In addition to the obvious push factor of the persecution of Hmong people, the community and help in the U.S. that Yang found was a huge pull factor for his immigration. He references it multiple times in the interview. Many Hmong people moved to America, and to Minnesota specifically, due to chain migration. Yang's son came to America two years before he did. In his interview, Yang is hoping to have his own house, even though this is very different to how he describes his more nomadic life in the jungle in Laos. Nowadays, the Twin Cities have the biggest urban population of Hmong people outside of Laos. The 2010 census recorded the Hmong population in the U.S. being more than 260,000. More than 66,000 Hmong people lived in Minnesota. A more recent American Community Survey taken in 2019 determined that there are 81,000 Hmong people in the Twin Cities alone. At the end of his interview, Yang reminds us of the importance of community and support of migrants. Last thing that I want to say is that I'm a, a person that know a lot of things about my custom and my culture, and I want every children to know that I'm the one that know everything. And I know how to play uh, every instrument in my country, such as the cane, the um, the flute, and the yang, and everything, and marriage song, like a few songs and like that I know everything and I want um, the uh, American people to know that and welcome uh, my uh, people uh, and uh, keep continue keep encourage and uh, funding so uh, we can keep our culture alive so um, uh, we still have uh, something to look back to Seng Su Yang's journey isn't unique to the Hmong migration. Other migrations mirror his, such as the journey of some refugees from Syria. One of those, who goes by the name of Zara, stayed in the neighboring country of Lebanon for seven years before settling in Germany, like how Yang lived in Thailand for four years before moving to the U.S., both also left their countries of origin because of a civil war, and both are or want to be part of a chain migration. Now let's hear about what happened to Zara, halfway across the world. The Syrian refugee crisis is the largest refugee crisis in the world. So where do all those refugees go, and how do they get there? Starting in March 2011, pro-democracy protests took place in Syria. Protesters demanded reforms from the authoritarian government. The regime responded violently. Since then, rebel groups, government forces, and members of ISIS have been fighting in Syria. This civil war caused a lot of destruction from bombing and economic instability. This has made many places in Syria uninhabitable. 
with 90% of Syrians living in poverty. Many went to Lebanon, a neighboring country, in an intra-regional migration. Lebanon and Syria, both on the eastern end of the Mediterranean, have similar cultures and warm climates. Both countries' official language is Arabic, which makes communication simple. 64.9% of Lebanese people are Muslim, and around 90% of Syrians are Muslim. Zara is a Syrian refugee who went to Lebanon, whose interview I found transcripted online. Here is a reenactment. When the war got really bad in Syria in 2014, I fled to Lebanon with my family. We took the bus from Syria to Lebanon because it was much safer than walking, but it cost a lot of money, and we used all of our savings. We didn't receive any help from the government, even just basic money or social benefits for refugees. My husband couldn't find any work there, so we didn't have anything to eat either. Like many other refugees, Zara and her family emigrated from Lebanon. Zara's family applied for a visa to go to Germany. The process of getting a visa is extensive and long. You have to make an appointment for an interview in which you have to describe why you can't return to your country of origin and why you should be considered a refugee. You also have to fill out an application in person. Getting refugee status as per the Geneva Convention on Refugees is the best option for immigrants from Syria. This means you get a residence permit for three years, which is legal permission to live in Germany. Zara's family's visas came through after seven years. We were able to fly to Germany in January 2021 since we had a visa that we went into the country. But the tickets were so expensive that we didn't have any money when we arrived. I tested positive for corona as soon as I arrived. So I had to go immediately into quarantine at a different refugee camp. German refugee camps, like most refugee camps, are not the best places to live. Because of the large flow of refugees into Germany, Germany had to build emergency camps. In those camps, there isn't good infrastructure, such as roads, electricity, and water, and necessary equipment. Some refugees have to sleep in small beds with hundreds of others in the same hall. After Zara's quarantine ended, she moved with her family to their current camp. Technically, my husband and I could both work and look for an apartment as soon as we arrived, but there weren't any apartments available, so we are living in a refugee home until we can find one. As of this interview, their visa only lasts until the end of July, so they're applying for a permanent residence permit. I chose to come to Germany because I knew that there would be more opportunities for me here, and especially for my children. I only wish that my family in Lebanon, who is still waiting on a visa, are able to come to Germany soon. However, that isn't likely. In 2021, the year they made it to Germany, 54,903 Syrians applied for asylum in Germany. Only 15,859 Syrians were accepted. 38 were rejected. We can assume that many people's applications were not seen that year, like Zara's wasn't the first or second or sixth year her application was waiting. And out of the people who did make it, they might only be able to stay in Germany for a couple of years. This slow, bureaucratic slog of applications, visas, and waiting has exacerbated the largest current refugee crisis in the world. These refugees, these people, deserve better.
Thank you, Haley and Lily. If you are interested in hearing more stories like these, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you like what you hear, share it with some other podcast lovers you know in person or via social media and consider leaving a review.